My name is Lyle. I'm one of the pastors here and just want to say welcome, just like Elliot said earlier, if it's your first time. Yeah, I just encourage you to fill out a connect card, just a way for you to make your presence known. We do a, a Sojourner 10, which is kind of like a 10-minute introduction to who we are as a church, get you a chance to meet some of our leaders. We do that on the second Sunday of every month, and so that's today. Today's the second Sunday, and we'll meet right after the service, right, right behind you here to my left, your right, there's a little sign. Um, so if you could stick around for that, man, I'd love for you to do that. Uh, but also fill out a connect card just a way for you to kind of connect with us and way for us to kind of get to know you better. You can fill that out and drop it off in the giving basket. Uh, that's going to be passed out here in just a minute. If you need a little bit more time, there's a giving box that's out in the atrium. You can drop it off uh, in there. So we got a lot of good things going on within the life of our church. Uh, this past weekend, uh, we had well over 20 people that are part of what we call community group boot camp, which is a a way to kind of get some a training for those that might be interested in community group leadership and hosting. Uh, so we're very thankful for the 20, 25 people that showed up for that. Uh, we're praying that God would help us to launch 10 new groups by the beginning of the year, uh, by 2020. And so you can be praying with us about that. We've got about 40 people that are at our youth camp right now uh, called Crossings at uh, Jonathan Creek. And so uh, you can be praying for them. Uh, there's a little Pray for Camp card. It's in our Welcome Center. Uh, you can grab that on your way out. It gives you all the names of the students and the adults that are uh, taking a week uh, to, to spend some time uh, at that. So it's going to be a great stuff. We've got Father's Day coming up next Sunday. So I encourage you to come back with your dads. Uh, we'll do the feast and we'll have a special little um, something for dads uh, at that feast. We try to do this at our Mother's Day thing. And we didn't do the feast, but we had something special for Mother's Day. But I don't think it was special for moms. I think it was special for everyone. And so uh, we're, we're kind of redoing that a little bit with dads and hopefully learn from that. Um, so yeah, and then we got Vacation Bible School coming up in a week. And so uh, if you're able to serve and help us out that week, man, you can go back to the, uh, the VBS little station that's out in our atrium and let them know that, hey, you can, uh, you can help us out during that week. If your kids have not signed up or registered for that, I encourage you. Uh, to do that. So a lot of good things going on in our church life and summer's here. So uh, most of your kids are out of school. Amen. <laughs> so maybe just a little amen there. I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, if you got a Bible, I encourage you to go to Esther. Uh, Esther is in the Old Testament. Uh, and so if you get the Genesis, go right. If you get the Psalms, go left. If you get the Revelation, you're really, really off. So you got a little ways going back. So uh, we are working through the book of Esther for just the month of June. Um, so it's been about four Sundays here. And um, to say the least, um, Esther is a really strange book. It is. It's um, probably one of the strangest books in all the Bible. Uh, so in case you didn't know this, just to let you know, we talked about this last week. But God's never mentioned in the book of Esther, which that's weird right? I mean, for some of us that's been in church for a while, maybe that's like blah, blah, blah. But it needs to be kind of weird for us that a book in the Bible doesn't one time reference God. Not one time. That's crazy. Uh, so that's, that's a little strange. Nobody prays in the book. I mean, all right, we'll give no mention of God, but at least a prayer. Amen? It's in the Bible. There's got to be a prayer somewhere. No prayers. No miracles. There's not one miracle that happens in Esther. Uh, the main characters, if you were here last week, Mordecai and Esther, and maybe we burst your world and your vision of those two main characters. But at, at minimal, the first half of this book, they are kind of a mess, right? They, they aren't, you know, they're not strong, convictional Christ followers there. No, they're, 
assimilated into the Persian culture, uh, extremely compromised. They're hiding their Jewish identity. Esther sleeps with the pagan king. I don't know about you. You know, when you read that whole thing in chapter 2, maybe your mind goes that they were just kind of having tea on their first dates. Like, hey, let's get to know one another. What's your favorite color? What band do you like? Oh, I love that band, right? That's not what's going on there. That's, that's some, uh, some, some interesting things going on there. It's not tea, that's for sure, amen? Um, maybe no amens. I guess not. So that's, uh, but it's a really strange book, and this is the irony of this. Historically speaking, uh, this book is um, uh, given high regard to most Jewish people. So even to this day, um, Jewish scholars would say that there's, you know, two portions of Scripture that could never be abolished. And those two portions of Scripture, and they're talking about the Old Testament, are the books of Moses, which is the first five books that we have in our Old Testament. And the second book that can never be abolished is Esther. A book where God's not even mentioned, no prayers, no miracles, and the main characters are a little, a little bit of a mess, Right? And um, God and politics and Esther, it's a commentary. This guy says this, More space is devoted in rabbinic literature to commentary on Esther than to any other work in the Bible besides Genesis. And even the festival that's done annually that kind of commemorates what took place in the book of Esther is the biggest party, even to this day, that's still celebrated by the Jewish people. Why? Why is that? Where God is hidden throughout all this book, no prayers, no miracles, why is that? I mean, I think there are several reasons. I'm going to give you one on why I think that's the case. I think it's because Esther speaks to life as we experience it. The book of Esther is a gift to us because it speaks to life as we experience it. And how do we experience God? I mean, experience life? I would say that the um, common question that we ask ourselves in the journey of life is this Where is God? He seems absent, He seems vacant, He doesn't seem to be working. I mean, what we want. And we'll get to Daniel in the month of July. But what we want is we want Daniel's experience, right? We want the book of Daniel where we can look and see God working in clear, powerful ways. Three guys that don't get burned up in a furnace. And actually there's a fourth. It's like, oh, man, that, right, right there. Something going on with that one. That's big. That's it, right? And man, can I get a little like, yes, I'm with you a lot. Or, you know, Daniel in the lion's den, right? You're in a den with... With lions that enjoy us, right? You know, we are meat to them. Like, like they, they don't care whether their meat's cooked or raw. Like they enjoy the flesh, amen, right? And now they're just like little cats purring, and, right? That's, that, shows, that shows God in a real powerful, clear way. You can point and say, there's God. And then you get to the book of Esther, and it's crickets, Nothing. He's hidden. Seems absent. Doesn't seem to be doing anything at all. And the question that you 
begin to ask as you work through the book of Esther is the question that we ask, and that is, where is God? Where is he? So what I want to do this morning um, is I want to, we're in chapters 3 and 4. We're going to read just a little bit of the end of chapter 4 here. And in these two chapters, I want to just basically answer this question as best I can, and and this is what I think we can learn here. Um, What does it look like to live life with God in this world, in this time? What can we learn in these two chapters of what it kind of looks like, and not just looks like, but feels like when we're living life with God, in relationship with God through Jesus Christ, in this world, where the common melody maybe is, where is he? Where is he? So, if you're able, let's stand together in honor of reading God's word. Esther, chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 7, which means we're starting in the middle of a chapter, which means we're starting in the middle of a story that will make sense as we work through this text today, okay? Start it in verse 7, and we'll read down to verse, uh, to the end of the chapter. So hear the word of the Lord. So Mordecai, who's the uncle of Esther, and Esther is now the queen of Persia. That's chapters 1 and 2. If you missed last week, you can listen to Josh online, or you can read chapters 1 and 2. Really encourage you to read the whole book of Esther. It's just 10 chapters. Take you about 20 minutes uh, to work through it, depending on how fast you read. So Mordecai told him everything that happened, as well as the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. That's a big problem, the slaughter of the Jews. That's the big issue going on in the book of Esther. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa, ordering their destruction, so that Hathak might show, to, show it to Esther and explain it to her and compa- command her to approach the king and to implore his flavor, favor and plead with him personally for her people. Hathak came and repeated Mordecai's response. Mordecai's response to Esther. And Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard who has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the golden scepter, allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear before the king for the last 30 days. And Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. And then Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you're in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place. But you and your father's family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps... You have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. And after that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we give thanks for uh, this strange little book. Thank you, God, for it. And we're thankful that it's a part of 
the finished work here, this completed revelation of who you are. So thank you for preserving it and keeping it, God, and inspiring the authors to write this book. And I just pray it will be a blessing, and not just a blessing, but this book will be helpful for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So if you're a note taker, today's your day, right? So I don't always work with an outline, but I never always expose my outline. Sometimes I just let you sit and guess. Today I'm exposing my outline. So here we go. We got, there's three things we can learn in these two chapters uh, that teach us what it looks like to live life with God in this world. The first thing uh, is this, and if you want to write this down, awesome. If you don't, you don't have to. No big deal. No brownie points or extra money if you write them down. So the first one is this. Life with God in this world can be confusing or another way of putting that in case some of you are not in the midst of this life with God in this world will be confusing so if you're with us last week if not I encourage you to go home and read this at the end of chapter 2 Mordecai Esther's uncle uncovers a plot to try to assassinate King Xerxes so it was a little plan going on with a few guys to try to assassinate King Xerxes. So Mordecai tells Esther about the plot. Esther tells the king. They do some investigation, finds out this true. They kill the people that are trying to assassinate him. And they record this event, record this, what Mordecai did. And what, you know, they call it, call it, call it the book of records or whatever it is, all right? And so what you're expecting at the beginning of chapter 3 is that because of Mordecai's, you know, Revealing this plot, this plan, what you expect is that Mordecai is not going to be promoted into a prominent position within the kingdom. Instead, what you read is this. Verse 1. After all this took place, giving reference to what just happened at the end of chapter 2, where Mordecai gave them this assassination plan, right? King Xerxes honored Haman. So if you're reading, you're going, well, who's Haman, right? He didn't do anything. What, what, what are you doing, you moron? It was Mordecai. That's what you want to add in there. No, you're messing this up. How can you forget, right? Mordecai did something really good. Why are you promoting Haman, right? What's the deal here? Haman, the son of whatever that guy's name is. So I tried to pronounce it in nine and butchered it, so we're not going to pronounce it today. And so the Agagai, which is like another detail, we're going, who cares? Who's this Agagai? Why is that important? I'll tell you in just a minute. He promised him in rank and gave him a higher position than all the other officials. The entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because, he, because the king had commanded this to be done for him. But Mordecai would not bow down or pay him homage. Verse 5 says, when Haman saw that Mordecai was not bowing down or paying homage, he was filled with rage. So what you expect, verse 1 to say, is that after all these events, Mordecai was promoted. Instead, we read, after all these events, Haman, who's an Agagite, which mainly means he's a part of a people called the Amalekites. And so if you go to Exodus chapter 17, you would see that the Amalekites are a, a ferocious, evil nation and an enemy of the Jews. They're the first nation that attacked the Jewish people as they're leaving Egypt. And they didn't just go and attack their mighty soldiers or the people that are ready to do battle. No, they attacked the people that are at the end 
of, the, of this, this group of people. The, the women, the children, the elderly, the, the sick, the lame, the, the most vulnerable people in the nation of Israel, this nation would go and attack and plunder them. So, you know, really, you know, outstanding, full of character kind of people. Amen, right? That being very sarcastic, and hopefully you got that sarcasm. So here it is, right? This is who's promoted. This is who is given, you know, a consolidated power, so to speak, right? That, that the king is saying everybody else kind of bow down to him. And then Mordecai does what is right. You know, up to this point, Mordecai is kind of going with the flow, fully assimilated in the Persian culture. But this is the limit. Like, I'm not going to bow down and worship a guy as if he is God or that he is divine. And so that's the, the limit for Mordecai. He does what is right, refuses to bow down and pay honor or homage to Haman. And so in re- response to that, Haman is full of rage, as we see in verse 5. And as we read the rest of chapter 3, we see it's not just enough that Haman see to it that Mordecai gets killed because of what he's done. He wants his entire people group to be done away with. And that's the Jews. So Haman goes and approaches King Xerxes. He doesn't tell him exactly who this people group is, but he makes sure he knows that they're a threat to the nation. King Xerxes says, okay, do what you want, Haman. And so by the end of chapter 3, King Xerxes has sent out an order, a decree, to wipe out the entire population of the Jewish people. Not just Mordecai, but all the Jews. That's confusing. Mordecai is overlooked after saying, hey, here's a plot to kill you, King Xerxes. He's the one that found it out. He's the one that shared it. Instead, Haman, an enemy of the Jews, is promoted, given a ton of power, and by the end convinces the king to destroy an entire population. And Mordecai does what is right. He doesn't bow, and this is the result of that. And now, guys, I get it. We know the whole story, right? We got the advantage point. We know the book. Chapter 10, chapter 4, chapter 5, all this comes and everything works out. We get that. And I'm just asking us just for a moment to sit in chapter 3 without knowing what happens in 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. Stay in real time. Because if we're in real time, then this is really confusing. This is not what we would expect. I would even say that even Esther herself is really confusing because she did everything wrong and was promoted queen. When we look at the book of Daniel, that kind of makes sense. He resisted. He stuck with his convictions. God honored that. He rose to power. You know what I'm saying? Like, we get all that. But then you got Esther who hides her identity, goes and sleeps with the pagan king, and assimilates and does everything that everybody says to do. And here she is. She's now queen. She does everything wrong, and she's risen to the second person in power, so to speak. That seems confusing. I think for a lot of us in this room, we would say the same thing if we looked at our life. Yes, guys, look. Yes, we have a a fuller understanding of God's purposes and revelation. Yes, we've got more knowledge than what Mordecai and Esther 
pass here. We know who Jesus is and what he did and how God's bringing history to its appointed end and, and that someday there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. We know where all this is going. We got that. We understand that. We got more answers here than what Mordecai and Esther have. But in the midst of this, in this kind of in-between time where we're waiting for God to come and make all things new, it can be confusing. And maybe sometimes feel cruel. This week, I, um, I did the funeral of one of my students. I'm not that old. He was 24 years old. Died of a heart attack suddenly. So here I am, Wednesday, 1 o'clock, doing a funeral of a 24-year-old boy. I opened that funeral by quoting that passage of Scripture in Ecclesiastes that says, better to be in a house of mourning than in a house of feasting. And the way, the way, another way you can translate that is better to be at a funeral than a wedding. And I said, look, I don't know about you guys, but I'm having um, difficulty believing that text because I would rather be doing Levi's wedding than his funeral. And that's what we should be doing. He's 24 years old. We should be doing his wedding. All these people should be gathered here celebrating a wedding. Instead, we're doing his funeral. Guys, look. I, I know all the right things to say here. I do, right? And if you've been in church long enough, you do too. And I'm not saying that those are not true. They're not what sustains us through some of the darkest seasons like this. I'm just trying to say when we're in real time like this, it's confusing. What do you say to Jeff and Julie, the mom and dad? That's really confusing. Maybe even cruel. It feels like that. I'm not saying God's cruel. I'm just trying to help you hear what possibly a mom and dad may be thinking at that moment. Karen Jobes in her... Um, Commentary on Esther says this. When we look at current events in the world and more personally events in our own lives, we often find their meaning ambiguous. A given event in our life might be good or it might be bad, and it is most often a, a mixed blessing. Often we can't even evaluate the significance of an event until years later, if ever. To confuse us further, bad decisions may nevertheless produce good things, and vice versa, good decisions may produce bad things. And what starts out as good intentions may end up in heartbreak. So often our carefully laid plans are frustrated, and we are forced to admit 
that we are not in control of our lives, no matter how hard we try. Life in this world, life with God in this world, can be, will be, confusing. So what are we to do? How do we respond to this? What's well, the second thing we see in this text? Life with God in this world, yeah, can be confusing. So then therefore, look, we must, and I use these words very clearly, learn to hope. Learn, that's very important. Because some of us in this room are done, right? Hoping is opening me up to more pain. And so doing life with God in this world is going to require us to learn to hope. And for some of us in this room, learn to hope again. And that's hard. But that's what we see in this passage of Scripture. So look, look, just kind of review. So command goes out at the end of chapter 3. They have 11 months before this command is going to come to fruition. All right? Mordecai puts on um, different clothes, kind of what they say, sackcloth and ashes. It's a way of showing mourning and distress that there's a major problem. He's outside the king's gate, kind of wailing and crying out. Esther finds out about this. You know, says, hey, what's going on with my uncle? Will you send him some clothes? Put on some clothes. He's kind of embarrassing me. So she sends some clothes his way. Mordecai refused to put those clothes on, explains to her or explains to the servant what's going on, Ask him to go tell her to go and act, do something about this, go to the king, please plead on behalf of your people because we're going to be annihilated. And her first response was what? Do you remember? It's not hard. It's two, two letters. Say it out loud. No. All right, let's do that again. Her first response was, thank you very much. That was rough, man. All right. Um, so no, and, and she specifically says there, I haven't been with the king in 30 days, or I haven't been summoned by the king in 30 days. And so that can mean several things. It could mean that he's kind of done with her. That his infatuation of Esther and her kind of initial beauty has wore off, and there's someone else. That's kind of captivating his sexual energy, so to speak. And so for her to go to the king without being summoned would mean she would die. It would cost her her life. And then verse 13, we read this. Look what he says. In chapter 4, Mordecai told the messengers to reply to Esther, okay, don't think that you will escape the fate and all of all the Jews and because you are in the king's palace if you keep silent at this time. Relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. I'll come back to that in just a minute because that seems a little confusing. Come back to that. But here's where I want you to see. Who knows? Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. What's going on here with that two little words and that phrase, who knows? What is Mordecai doing? What Mordecai is doing is an expression of possibility. It's an expression of hope. Esther, who knows? Maybe the reason why you have all these coincidences and you have this beauty and you've been risen to the position that you've been positioned, uh, the position you have is because of this moment. Who knows, Esther? He is awakening the possibility that things could change. 
He's awakening the possibility that this doesn't have to be our fate. It's not sealed. Who knows, Esther? He's trying to awaken in her this hopefulness that something can change. Something can be different. Someone could save us from this, this, this edict to where the Jewish population is going to be wiped out. Who knows? In a world that most philosophers, talking about our time in our culture, would describe it as a disenchanted world, which basically means this. It's a world that has been drained of magic, of any supernatural presences, of spirits and God and transcendence. A disenchanted world is a material world where what you see is what you get. That doesn't mean that there's not people who believe in God or there's not religion. It just means this. They're no longer needed. We can explain all that away scientifically. And so not only does that describe our culture that we, that we live in, or another way I say this, the soup that we swim in, like it's, it's the air that we breathe. And so if that's the culture in which we inhabit it, so it's not only describing our culture, it's also describing us. We're disenchanted. That's why, all right? Hang with me. Don't mean to punch you in the gut. Maybe I do a little bit. But hang with me because I'm punching myself in the gut. It's kind of hard to get it out, right? But, but that's why when we hear of a miracle, when someone gets healed in a miraculous way, or when, when we hear God doing something miraculous and, and saving someone from a disaster, whatever it may be, there's, there's, there's kind of like a both and that goes on. Yes, we celebrate and say, praise God, that's awesome. And then at the same time, deep inside of us, there's doubt. There's questioning. I don't know if that's really true. I need to have a little more evidence. I need to be kind of proven that that really happened. Why? Because we're a product of our culture. And if our culture is disenchanted, so are we. In Mike Cosper's book on Esther, which I'd highly recommend, he tells this story um, by Brene Brown that when she... Um, she does this talk, and she does this with kind of crowd participation. She just says, you know, imagine a family uh, is getting ready to go to the beach for the day. It's a beautiful day, right? Not too hot, not humid, just right to get in the ocean and play on the sand without sweating and losing 20 pounds, right? So it's a beautiful, awesome day. I don't know if you can picture that. I can. kind of wish I was there right now. Matter of fact, and preaching on the beach. Uh, so you can Skype me in. Maybe we can make that work sometime. Um, but... So she tells this story. Imagine this beautiful day. The family gets, a, gets in the car. They got all their stuff, their food, or you know, lawn chairs, whatever, beach chairs, not lawn chairs, beach chairs. And it's going to be awesome. So they get in the car. They, they back out of the driveway. And then she wants the crowd to finish the story. What happens? And this is crowd participation at this time. So what happens to this family? And she says, every time I share this story, the majority of people We'll say something bad happened. The kids get in a fight. A kid throws up. Mom and dad get in a fight. They get a flat tire on the way there. The car breaks down. It, no one, she says, no one ever says they had a great day. It was wonderful. It was amazing. It was one of those that you just put down in your memories. 
No one ever says that. Why? Because I think we're afraid to hope. It shows something going on in us. It's easy to be cynical. It's easy to be a cynic. That's a lot of us, including me in this room. But it takes courage. It takes practice. It takes reorienting our lives around a different story, like the story of Esther, to help us learn to hope. Who knows? Who knows? God is a God who is always active. God is a God who is still powerful. God is a God who is still at work. And God is a God who is still doing and performing miracles. There's never a hopeless situation. Why, Lau? Because God is there. That's why. And that's why I love those two little words that Mordecai did. Who knows, Esther? Just trying to awaken hope in her. Trying to awaken the possibility in her. Who knows for you? Yeah, I know maybe your marriage feels like it's completely over, but who knows? God's still at work. I know that child or that close friend seems really far from Jesus, but who knows? God's still at work. I know it never looks like that relationship's going to ever be repaired. It's going to end, whatever it is. But who knows, right? There's always hope because God is at work. Whatever dark place you're in today, whether by hapless circumstances or by your own actions, God has not forgotten you. He sees, He knows. Esther's story invites us to cling to hope, however small, and to confidence that whatever evil might currently reign, the story of God is not finished. I love how Paul says this in Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with what? With hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Never confuse God's hiddenness for His absence. Never confuse God's apparent hiddenness for His absence. Learn to hope again. God is always at work. That's why I, I believe the practices of our faith are so indispensable and valuable for us as followers of Jesus Christ. I do. And, and when I talk about practices of faith, I mean, some have called them disciplines, habits, whatever it is. A, a better way of even thinking about them is, is a way of being in this world. This is a practice. What you do every single Sunday when we gather as a body and rehearse the gospel is not just something you do. Something's being done to you as you participate in this practice. When we scatter from here and meet in homes and do life together that we call community groups, that's a practice. It's not just something you do. It's something that's being done 
to you and in you. Reading your Bible, praying, fasting, giving, silence, solitude. All of those are practices. And yes, those practices God uses to give, you know, strength and encouragement to get us through very difficult seasons of life. But that's not their only purpose. They're also there to open us to kind of a a whole new world. And don't think Aladdin here with me, all right? Even though I love that song, a whole new world. But but (laughs) come back with me, all right? I didn't mean to do that. But it, it, it opens us to a world. It kind of awakens a childlike faith in us, a childlike wonder that God can do anything. That he could divide the waters, right? That he could show up in a fiery furnace. That he could shut the mouths of a lion. That he can actually cause you to walk on water, right? That he actually can heal the blind, the sick, the lame. That he could take somebody's lunchable and feed 10,000 people, right? That's, That's the story that we need to kind of reshape our mind and thinking around if you don't do that you'll be a product of this culture you'll become disenchanted and you'll be cynical and you'll be numb in this life and the reason why you're numb is so you're guarding yourself from pain and God is going yeah there's risk but I'm inviting you to more I'm inviting you to hope that's what I'm inviting you to that things can change because God is at work. So yes, life with God in this world is going to be confusing. You better believe it. And sometimes it might actually feel cruel. Bearing a child is really confusing. And at the same time, life with God in this world is going to require us to learn to hope and learn to hope again. And then lastly, and this is where we'll land the plane, life with God in this world will require faith, and in that will come risk. Look what happens here. So first, Esther says no. Verse 13 in chapter 4. We've already read this, but I'll read it again here. Mordecai comes back and says this. Esther, don't think you're going to escape the fate of the Jews because you're in King's Palace. Just because you're in safety, you got all these people around you to guard you, don't, don't, don't think you're going to escape the fate. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. So hear what Mordecai is saying. Esther, you may lose your life if you go to the king unsummoned. But Esther, you will certainly lose your life if you don't. That's confusing. What do you mean? How, how is that possible? I mean, she's queen. <laughs> she's, that's a pretty big deal, right? And she's going to be okay. If she chooses not to act, chooses not to say anything, she's going to be fine. Nobody's going to kill her. What do you mean she's going to surely die? Well, here's what I think is going on here. There's some other ways you can interpret this, but I think what's being said here is that there are ways of losing your life without losing your life physically. Are you following me? There are ways that we can lose our life without actually losing our life physically 
If Esther chooses not to do anything for her people and she chooses to stay quiet, safe, secure in the palace, and as her people get annihilated, I promise you this, it will cause her to lose her life. It will cause her to lose her soul when she steps back and watches a people get annihilated that she could have done something about. So Esther must decide, am I going to identify with God's people and act on behalf of God's people, or am I going to be quiet and safe and secure in the palace? She has no word from God. She has no prophetic vision. She has no promises to go to that says, hey, if you do this, everything's going to be great. She doesn't have chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, right? This is a real risk. And so this is what she says in chapter, verse 15. So Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews. Who can be found in Susan, fast for me, don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. And after that, I will go to the king, even if it's against the law. If I perish, I perish. So her choice is not between death and life. Her choice is between death and death. If I keep quiet, I'm going to die. If I go and speak, I, I may die. Up to this point in this story, Esther is, is passive throughout the whole book. Passive. She just does everything that everybody says to do. But in here, you see that she's becoming a maturing queen who begins to give orders. Beginning of chapter 4, Mordecai is giving orders on what Esther should do. At the end of chapter 4, Esther's giving orders to Mordecai and what he needs to do. So Esther responds with an act of faith. This is the only explicit religious moment in this whole entire book and so she embraces her identity as a girl with two names esther the queen will go before the king as hadassah the jew and if she perishes she perishes so i'll end with this and sometimes sermons because of time you're not able to kind of bring in everything all right so i'll end with this Look, none of us in this room are um, in the same dire situation that Esther is in as far as the decision that she has to make. None of us in this room are at a crossroads where if I don't act, a, a people group are going to be wiped out, right? So that's, I mean, that's kind of next level, amen? That's a whole other level of decision. But all of us, all of us have moments every day where we're making similar decisions. Will I be, will I identify myself as a child of God and do what God says? Many of us are at a, at a place of, of a crossroads even in your life. And guys, look, I don't, I don't know if this is, will be your defining moment. I mean, Esther didn't know that. All Esther had was this is, this is my choices and I'm choosing to do the right thing I don't know what's going to happen in the end. I don't know how all this ends out. She didn't know this was going to be an amazing defining moment for her that, you know, on June, whatever the date is, 2019, we would be gathered together talking about Esther, right? I mean, if she didn't do this, we wouldn't be talking about Esther. We'd be talking about somebody else because God would have raised somebody else to save the Jews, right? You follow me? So I don't know if this is a defining moment for you, but you don't know either. 
And so some of you have got a choice, a decision that's before you even right now. Well, I confess to my spouse what I've been hiding from her for years because I'm afraid of the consequences. Well, I confess to my employee or employers or whatever of something that I did that was kind of a little shady, but I've kind of kept hidden for the last few weeks because I'm afraid of the consequences. Well, I make that phone call to that kid that's breaking my heart and own and confess and repent of some of the ways that I treated them. Well, I make that phone call that I divorce spouse who doesn't own anything at all. And maybe I'd start the conversation by owning my part instead of pointing out all that they've done wrong. Maybe God's saying get out of a relationship that's not very helpful. Maybe God's saying quit your job because your job is killing your family. We all have these moments, these decisions, these kind of crossroads that even Esther is facing here. And here's my encouragement for you. I'm not telling us all go be like Esther because that will be crushing, all right? We're always looking forward to who Esther's pointing to, and he's pointing to Jesus, ultimately. He was the ultimate one that, that mediated on our behalf, who left the palace, so to speak, and interceded for us so that we can be right with God, given the the Holy Spirit to dwell in us so that we can look at Esther and learn from her. So here's what I know. My encouragement for you is that you would identify yourself as a child of God and do what God says. An act of faith, it may bring about enormous consequences that will not be fun, right? We have no guarantees that if you do the right thing, everything's going to work out, happy ever after. Let's make a Disney show about you, right? No. For the most part, maybe it'll be pretty bad. Like if you confess to your spouse something that you've hidden for a year or two, I'm just going to give you a heads up. That won't go well, right? It's not going to go, well, thank you so much for confessing, right? It's just not going to happen. But it could be a defining moment for your marriage. I do know this, that ultimately trusting and doing what God says leads to deep satisfaction in real life in spite of the consequences. Life with God in this world requires faith, and with that will come risk. So what is God right now, in this moment, calling you to act in faith in? What is it? May by God's grace, he give you the strength to obey. Let's pray. God, help us. Once again, we thank you for what you're teaching us through this book of Esther. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.